Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we've finally arrived at one of our favorite weeks of the year, where we delve into the creepy, the kooky, the mysterious, and spooky as we get a head start on Halloween with a show we call Haunted DC. (laughs) And this year, we have a whole new bag of tricks and treats for you. We'll visit the Eastern Shore to hear why the tiny town of Pocomog City, Maryland, has developed such a ghostly reputation. I don't mean uh, to say that it's a spooky place, but it's a place that is thick with presence. And we'll tour the homegrown Halloween spectacle that's sparking so much controversy in Silver Spring. This whole situation has been blown way out of proportion. Plus, we'll meet a man who makes a living writing stories designed to haunt your dreams. I was very easily scared. I had a very active imagination, which I think is, I think what most writers and most creative people, they have to have that. But we begin today's Haunted DC show by exploring a neighborhood that some people say contains a whole bunch of spooky spirits. More than 250 years worth, actually. Here we go. Um, we'll have you introduce yourself, and then you'll tell us where we are, why we're here, and the whole backstory. Well, my name is Tim Krepp. I'm a local Washington, D.C. tour guide. Uh, I'm also an author of a few books, which, conveniently enough for this time of year, have to do with ghosts. So I had Capitol Hill haunts last year, and coming out this year is Ghost of Georgetown. Tim and I recently met up in Georgetown, which officially dates back to 1751, making it more than 30 years older than D.C. itself. In the spirit of Tim's new book, he led me on an afternoon ghost tour of the neighborhood. We made several stops, starting along the CNO Canal, right near 33rd Street Northwest, just south of M. And the canal is a fairly important part about the history of Georgetown. Now, the reason Georgetown exists as a town itself was that this was the highest port town that ships could get up to on the river. Past here, you had rapids. To get around the rapids, they built the CNO Canal. And uh, this was built around the uh, you know, mid 1800s or so. Um, this was a seedy part of town. This was a rough part of town here. You didn't want to be caught here at night. Uh, in fact, one of the stories I have deals with the early 1890s. Uh, and it's the story of a police officer walking his beat along the canal towpath at night. And he sees this ghostly apparition waving a bloody razor, those old razors that used to shave with. Uh, and of course, He's a bit spooked by this, and who wouldn't be? It turns out that later that night, an actual assault takes place in Georgetown where a man tries to assault and kill one of his boarders in a boarding house. With a razor? With a razor, with a straight-edge razor, so Uh. totally unconnected to the the ghost. And so because of this, it sparks a whole litany of ghost stories in the Washington Post about other ghosts that have seen along the Sino Canal, from fishermen who claim that ghosts prevent them from from catching fish here, which perhaps maybe a bit more on the dubious side of the ghosts, two policemen that uh, refused to walk their beat. Uh, the police officers in the 7th Precinct of Georgetown called it the dead man's beat, so they didn't want to be walking along here at night. So do you feel better doing this interview during the day right now? Would you be spooked if we were here at night? No, I've been looking to see a ghost for years now, and I've got nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm willing to believe, and they won't show up for me, so that's very disappointing for me. But if anyone here said anything, let me know. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing about a current ghost along the Sino Canal. All right, so here we are we're, we're on Wisconsin. On Wisconsin, right near, uh, and you'll see the store here, the, the Gap. Like many other clothing stores along Wisconsin Avenue, uh, you wouldn't think much of it. But you can see it's a, a slightly larger building than its neighbors. It wasn't, as you might imagine, built as a Gap. It wasn't even built as a clothing store or any store at all. At first, it was built as what's called Forest Hall. And Forest was a... 
Forrest was a very eager bus driver <laughs> honking their horn. <laughs> uh, Forrest was a local developer that built this kind of on spec. Uh, he built it to house any number of things. So this was a popular, among other things, dance hall in the antebellum pre-war years. Uh, it progresses, the war happens, and the war totally changes the character of Georgetown. At this point, it becomes an armed camp. There are thousands of soldiers marching through here, and Forest Hall was, to, it was made as a kind of receiving area for prisoners. Uh, when you were caught drunk and disorderly in the Union Army, you were stashed there until you sobered up and they came and grabbed you. Confederate prisoners were housed there. Uh, and after the war, they tried to fix it back up again, but it never really had that same charm as the pre-war years. And it gradually declined. They were locking it up in 1919, and the Washington Herald did a quick story about it. And the old caretaker there insists that he's still here on the third floor, the all-night sounds of these ghostly balls continuing from the pre-war years, continuing on well into the evening. So, uh, so I went and asked at the Gap if they heard any sounds of antebellum balls or the swish of the silk skirts or the trot of the, of the boots, but... They looked at me quizzically and said no. They had no, no recollection of that. So I'm still waiting to hear if the gap is still haunted or not. So as we're heading up Prospect, you can see from the stream of kids going the other way, we're getting close towards Georgetown University. William Blady, who wrote The Exorcist, he attended here in the 1940s. And as he attended school in nearby Maryland, there was a uh, an exorcism. Blady heard the story, was kind of inspired by it, as writers do. In 1971, he published the book The Exorcist, which was set in Georgetown, the neighborhood. So this is the house that was haunted in the movie, or more precisely, it was uh, the daughter of the actress was was possessed by the demon. Uh, We're right near the steps here where the priest kicks the demon out of the little girl, takes the demon inside, and falls dramatically down the steps in the movie. Now, for the movie itself... They kind of created an L-shaped addition, so they needed the edge of the, of the house to adjoin the steps. Obviously, if you fall out of the house right now, you'd fall into the garden, and that wouldn't be anywhere near as dramatic. So you need to fall down the steps. They create an edge. They add a third story. If you look at the movie stills, you'd barely recognize the house. It's not that I can tell haunted, but the house that used to stand on the site was very much haunted. It was the home of a Mrs. Eden, E-D-E-N, that was her initials, Southworth. And she was a prolific novelist in the 19th century married to a husband who then abandoned her so she was still legally married and had no other options she wrote to make money for herself make money for her kids uh, eventually became quite wealthy doing it uh, enough to afford a cottage that stood on this site on the eve of the civil war the dawn of the civil war the battle of manassas took place only about 20 30 miles away from here so the citizens of washington they learned that this is a disaster the confederates have roundly beaten us and the residents of Washington, the residents of Georgetown, are panicked by this. Like, are the Confederates going to come? Are they going to invade? Will the city be put to the torch? Who knows? And Mrs. Southworth gathers her, her daughter and her son in the, in the house and says, there's only three of us here. How will we survive if the Confederates come? And a mysterious voice in the background says, there are four of you here and you'll be fine. And when she passes away, the house goes through a few owners. It becomes an ice cream shop. And there's an Italian greengrocer uh, that sets up his cart out front and he's selling his goods. Until one night he sees Mrs. Southworth coming out of the garden and talks to him. Uh, he had known Mrs. Southworth when he had been here beforehand, and he panics and runs away. So, so she, she stuck around until the house was torn down, uh, I believe the 1920s or so. So uh, this house that we see right here is built in the 1940s, 50s, some of that point. So it's boringly unhaunted, but it was haunted at one point. So no Southworth no, so, sighting since then? Not since then. No, 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 no. Since, not since, since her, her uh, even when the house uh, was an ice cream shop, it was a tourist stand, her library was kept, she was a, an avid reader, was kept as preserved, and that's where she would be seen and heard from. So presumably when the books were taken away, she went away as well. 
That was local tour guide and author Tim Krepp. His latest book, Ghosts of Georgetown, is out now from the History Press. For more on the book and to see a photo of the so-called exorcist steps before Hollywood gave them their dramatic makeover, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We'll hop across the D.C. border now and head to Maryland, more particularly to Silver Spring, Maryland, where you'll find a garden that's chock full of ghosts and goblins and spine-chilling specters. But as Tara Boyle reports, this cornucopia of spookiness isn't what's haunting the garden. What's really haunting the garden and its owners is a less-than-supernatural scandal. Rainia Pete is a woman with a long to-do list. She's rummaging through big plastic bins she just pulled out of a backyard shed. And at the moment, she's trying to find a working fog machine. So what is all this stuff that we're looking at? I see, okay, dismembered head that I got. Spiderweb, body parts, spandex, lights, fog machines, fog chiller. Then there are jars full of eyeballs, plastic skulls, wigs. Fabric, chicken wire ghosts, animated props, candles, extension cords and random things. All this stuff will soon be put to use in the haunted garden, a sort of Halloween on steroids display Pete assembles every October in the yard of a single-family home on Worth Avenue in Silver Spring. This year, her signature installation will be a 20-foot-high witch that looms over visitors as they enter the yard. We've been building this for months, actually, up at my farm in West Virginia. You know, we start from using wood, And we create an inner shell, an endoskeleton, if you will, for each of the pieces. And we cover them in chicken wire uh, and then cover that in cheesecloth, which then gets sprayed with a two-part spray foam system. All this takes time, something Pete has found to be in short supply of late. This year, not only was I working hard and stressed out about getting the production end done of it, but then I had to get sent into a whirlwind of media and press and interviews and backlash and court and running a campaign for the kids and it yeah it was complete insanity what she's talking about is this it's that time of year when neighborhood halloween displays are popping up all over the country you could call this a fright fight in silver spring it's a neighborhood party but this fourth year of her haunted garden is coming to a screeching halt The Washington Post, Good Morning America, local TV and radio. It seemed everyone was talking about how earlier this month, Montgomery County was awarded a temporary restraining order that at least for a while halted plans to open this year's haunted garden to the public. It's been extremely stressful um, just dealing with everything and just we're just still kind of amazed that people don't like it. Donna Kerr is the Silver Spring homeowner who's hosted the event on her property since 2010. We feel like it's a great event for the community. There's overwhelming support here for it. But some people in the neighborhood are less than thrilled with Kerr's spooky spectacle. This is not an issue of, do you like the haunted garden? That's not the issue at all. Jean Cavanaugh lives just a few doors down from Donna Kerr. We don't have any problems with her decorations, etc. It's the insane invitation that basically invites tens of thousands of people. You know, in addition to the paper flyer, it's, it's the website. Now it's the news media. Everybody knows about it. Kavanaugh says, for the record, that she loves Halloween. But in her opinion, neighborhood streets can't handle the hundreds of daily visitors who swarm to the haunted garden when it's open. People drive on residents' yards, she says, and she's even heard reports of public urination. 
County officials have definitely taken note of those complaints. Here's Montgomery County's Director of Permitting Services, Diane Schwartz-Jones. You know, people, when they buy their homes and move into a community are entitled to be able to peacefully enjoy their neighborhood. Jones argues that the Haunted Garden is essentially a way for CARE to promote her real estate firm, Pure Energy. The issue really is not about whether or not anybody can decorate their home. Of course they can. The issue is about whether or not a business can begin to introduce extreme levels of traffic into a very small, tiny neighborhood that's not designed to handle that kind of traffic. It's about public safety. Pure Energy has publicized the Haunted Garden in its real estate flyers and online, and the company's staffers are among those working on the garden. But CARE strongly refutes the idea that the Haunted Garden is a business event. She says it's a way to give back to the community she calls home. Earlier this month, Maryland District Court Judge Patricia Mitchell tried to find a compromise between the two sides in the dispute, ruling that the event could take place on two days, October 25th and 26th, instead of the planned five. Pirates are in the boat. Oh, I've already thrown them in there. We've got to hang up all the pirates. And so back on Worth Avenue, the show is going on. So I wrote a punch list for each exhibit. Um, so we need to accomplish a bunch of tasks in five days and assign roles. And Hey, Kevin, what are you doing over there? Rainia Pete and her staff of helpers, she calls them ninjas, spent this week in a frenzy, hot gluing and cobwebbing and spray foaming the displays in Donna Care's yard. If this ends up being... You know, say next year, who knows what would happen. But if it ends up being just a few nights, is it worth all the time and effort you all have to put into it for two nights? Always. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a lot more than just the two nights of people coming. It creates art. Down the street, Jean Cavanaugh is also thinking ahead to next year. And she says there's an obvious way for her neighbor to repair relations with people in the community. Personally, my ideal resolution to this problem would be for um, Donna to have a truly neighborhood event and not advertise it. I don't know if we're going to get there. The matter may be settled long before Halloween 2014 rolls around. County officials say they expect a judge to consider a request for a permanent injunction against Silver Spring's most controversial garden sometime in the next few months. I'm Tara Boyle. If you'd like to check out the Haunted Garden yourself from the comfort of your own computer, you can see photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break now, but when we get back, haunting memorials to people who lost their lives in street violence. This isn't the story of one murder. This is the story of a city's coping with violence and the scale of it. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're carrying on with our annual pre-Halloween tradition and presenting a show we call Haunted DC. But 
Our next story is haunting in a way that has nothing to do with the approaching holiday. It's about a local photographer who spends his free time traveling across the D.C. area and taking pictures of murder sites and the memorials left to victims of urban violence. Jacob Fenston has more. Driving around D.C. with Lloyd Wolf, there are ghosts everywhere, in alleys behind garden apartments, next to chain-link fences. I actually see the city that way with ghosts because there's so many people have been killed. And I don't know the number, but it's in the many, many, many thousands of people in the last 20 years. It's a big number. It is a big number. 4,882 people have been murdered in the district over the past 20 years. This is like the slow version of a war. But with wars, we build monuments to the fallen. We have big official ways to mourn and commemorate. Not so for the thousands who die on city streets. Well, I'm not sure. i got to look at the map, so I'm just going to pull over. We're circling around Congress Heights in southeast D.C. Every few blocks, Wolf points to a lamppost or tree he's visited before. Congress Street, there have been two of them here. These are Wolf's ghosts, street memorials, put up by friends and family of recent murder victims. You've probably driven by them. That's what most people do, drive by. But Wolf stops and gets out his cameras. We've stopped at the spot where a young man named Devar Battle was killed in late September. Under a huge oak tree, there's an odd collection of stuffed animals, family photos, candles, and liquor bottles. You notice it's mostly really high-end liquor, plus a Snapple, or whatever that is. It's from that, in the Bible, there's a tradition of a libation. You pour it as a, a sacrificial offering. Over the past 10 years, Wolf has collected more than 2,000 photos of street memorials. 2,476. To me, part of what makes this work is the volume. This isn't the story of one murder. This is the story of a city's coping with violence. He started this as a kind of personal project. He was mentoring a young man living in Southwest who'd lost four relatives to violence over the course of 13 months. Wolf lives in a safe suburban neighborhood in Arlington, but as he spent more time in rougher areas, he started pulling over when he saw memorials. It grew into an obsession. He'd plan out his weekends looking at the Washington Post's crime pages. It's just part of my routine now. I'll go out with my little maps and box lunch and drive around the community. He's fascinated by the memorials as folk art, spontaneous communal expressions. A lot of these things have all the elements that you might see at an avant-garde gallery. Except to me, they have so much more power. Some memorials are elaborate and gaudy, but sometimes the simplest are the most moving. Since there's less there to engage your eyes, you have to focus your attention on the specific and small, sad remnant. He pulls up photos from a tiny memorial to Samari Jenkins, a four-year-old girl who died in an arson fire in February. The photos are sparse and almost monochrome in the stark winter light. You know, police line, burned house, teddy bear, pink candle. In 2008, Wolf started a blog. He calls it Washington's Other Monuments. He posts photos of each memorial site with whatever information he can find about the homicide from police or news reports. The blog's comments section has grown into a place of community grieving, an online graveyard. I asked him about one post in particular. Uh, Demarcus Brown. Shot and killed June 14th, 2009. I don't know if you remember the comments in the, on the original post, but um, yeah, there's, a lot. there's a bunch of comments, and one of them is, is his mother. Darnese Brown posting two years after her son's death. 
Um, DeMarcus, this is your mother. I love and miss you so much. I'm sitting here on this computer crying, thinking about you every waking minute of my day. And then there follows this exchange with, I, I guess it was a girlfriend. DeMarcus's girlfriend had never met his mother, but writes, I'm grateful God put your son in my life. Even though I don't know you, I love you for creating such a beautiful person inside and out. Then six weeks later, a new commenter appears. I was with DeMarcus that night. I assume the night he was killed. I found him in the alley during his final moments. I was there when he passed, and although I had never met him before, I think of him often in the senseless loss of his life. Then the girlfriend writes back, Oh my God, thank God for you. I'm glad someone was there with him. There's a lot of that on this blog. I mean, there's a lot of material like that. When Wolf started this, he says he'd go out every couple of weeks with long lists of murder sites to visit. Now, weeks can go by with nothing. Last year, the district recorded the fewest murders since 1961. It's the first time in 50 years that number has dropped below 100, a tipping point, according to Police Chief Kathy Lanier. Wolf says in this changing city, he's thought about stopping his project. I don't think I'm going to. I hope, actually, I'd like to stop. And he will when the number of murders in the city hits zero. I'm Jacob Fenston. If you'd like to see some of Lloyd Wolf's photos of street memorials, you can view a slideshow on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Leesburg, Virginia and Greenbrier, Virginia. My name is Vince Cravinas. I'm 64 years old. I live in Greenbrier community, just west of Fairfax City. Been here a resident for 21 years. I just took over the presidency of our civic association. The tract of land that's west of Fairfax City was called the Carter Patent, which is about over 7,000 acres. And carved out of those 7,000 acres back in 1967 was Greenbrier. Some people may have heard of Lebanon Sons. They have done planned communities in other parts of the country. And they bought land that was totally undeveloped, nothing here, and built a community. It was so rural at the time, there was even a Save the Barns campaign. We were on a dairy farm. And where the barns were became Greenbrier Shopping Center. We now have about a little over 1,900 homes with approximately 5,000 residences. Everybody looks out for each other. That's the reputation Greenbrier has. It's a very tangible, strong, family-style atmosphere that you never get tired of. My name is Alana Blumenthal. I am 26 years old and I live in Leesburg, Virginia. Leesburg, Virginia is located in Loudoun County in Northern Virginia. It's about an hour west of Washington, DC. Leesburg, Virginia was founded in 1758 to be the county seat for the newly formed Loudoun County, uh, which had been split off from Fairfax in 1757. 
Um, pretty much immediately, people started moving here, building homes. Um, one of the most interesting features that we have downtown is the log cabin, which is a 1760s silversmith cabin that um, is still preserved. Leesburg on a Saturday morning is a great place to be. If the weather's nice, you'll see a lot of people milling around downtown, exploring the antique shops. There's a great variety of restaurants. Um, so people are just walking around on the brick sidewalks and enjoying what the town has to offer. It's, it's just a nice kind of homey feel. Uh, there's always something to do in Leesburg. Any business that's in the downtown original plat of Leesburg had, probably has a ghost story or two for you. Most of the ghosts in this area, I would say, are related to the Civil War. Um, there are stories about lanterns being able to be seen at Ball's Bluff at the battlefield where that took place and a number of, of people from both the Union and the Confederate armies were killed. So that's probably the main uh, source of ghosts in Leesburg that we hear about. We heard from Alana Blumenthal in Leesburg and Vince Cravinas in Greenbrier. If you would like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. You can also send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And you can find a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. Time now for On the Coast. Our regular look at the latest news from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. And as Halloween approaches, today we'll head to the historic Maryland town of Pocomoke City. It's about 40 minutes southwest of Ocean City, and it dates back to the 17th century. That's when its original settlement, a place called Stevens Landing, was founded. But here's the thing about Pocomoke City. With such a long pedigree, it's developed a bit of a ghostly reputation. Brian Russo visited Pocomoke this week with horror writer Mindy Burgoyne to learn more about some of that haunting history. There's a brisk chill in the air on this pitch black Pocomoke night. The ancient cypress trees look like people moving in the darkness. An author and historian Mindy Burgoyne is carrying a lone flashlight to guide us through Maryland's reportedly most haunted forest. She says historically, the scariest and best places to find ghosts are swamps and forests. And in this forest, you have both. It's a swampy forest. Great. And what's even more great is that there is no shortage of stories of people having paranormal experiences here. Burgoyne says there are all kinds of spirits in these woods, from former slaves to moonshiners to the murdered wife of a sea captain smuggler to Civil War draft dodgers to something called elementals. Elementals are non-human spirits. We have lots of names for them, fairies, goblins, things that aren't human on the other side. And the last tour I had here, I talked about the elementals, and we were standing right here, and we had people going, taking pictures all in the forest. And there were four or five of them that came out, not with orbs or things like that, but actual misty uh, shapes and shadows. And that's usually how you see an elemental come forward. Okay, so no flash photography in the Pokemon forest so as not to annoy the fairies and goblins. No big deal, right? I had a child that said he was touched. He was at the end of the line, and he got very upset and ran up to the front because somebody touched him on his back. And then he turned around and realized he was at the end of the line. And the stories get no less creepy as we walk out of the forest and alongside the deep, black, and eerily still waters of the Pocomoke River, where Burgoyne says people have seen ghosts walking on the shoreline. 
or at the old city armory, which used to be the jail, where former guards swear they've seen video surveillance camera images of a former inmate who had committed suicide there. There's also the story of a friendly spirit at the Marva Theater on Main Street, who often helps the volunteers find things they've lost or flips the lights on and off. And as the tour goes on, it feels like every street has a ghost story. Burgoyne says many locals have told her about experiencing something weird at one old Victorian house on 2nd Street. John Thomas Rafter is one of those locals. He used to live in the house. And at night, he often realized he wasn't alone. There would always be a shadow, like a presence down at the base of the stairs, down by the window, looking out the window. But the shadow was small, I mean, like a, like a child, maybe, or a teenager. And did it ever freak you out? I mean, did it get to a point after living here for a while that it just became a part of the house, like an end it table? Just, it just became part of the house. It never freaked me out because it just, I always figured it was a trick of the light or something. I mean, but, uh, but it was always there, you know. It almost became reassuring. So you might be asking yourself, why does this little riverside city on Maryland's eastern shore have so many ghosts? Here's Minnie Burgoyne. You know, Pocomoke has all the elements. It's got this really dark, black river that runs through it that's very deep and still on the top. Um, and it's got the, um, the forest on either side. So it's got that kind of marshy swamp. Um, and then the, um, the energy of the town, I don't know why it is, but if you walk through the town um, alone and just take in the buildings, it's not, I don't mean uh, to say that it's a spooky place, but it's a place that is thick with presence. And so in this small eastern shore community where nature, history, folklore, and the supernatural all meet and coexist in the eeriest of ways, Mindy Burgoyne says Pocomoke City isn't just a historic town. It's also a ghost town. I'm Brian Rousseau. After the break, it's the return of our series, The Location, as we go creeping through the catacombs in Northeast D.C. When I do the tours here, I tell the people, well, from now, now from, from the Holy Land, we are going to go straight to Rome because we go, <laughs> we're going to see the catacombs. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you our annual tour of Haunted D.C. Coming up, we'll check out a bone-chilling new play inspired by a beloved children's fairy tale, and we'll meet a local horror author who's nabbed more than four Bram Stoker awards. That's Bram Stoker as in the author of the 1897 gothic novel Dracula. But we'll kick off this part of the show with The Location. Our ongoing segment in which Kim Bender, author of the blog, The Location, tells us the intriguing stories behind locations around the region. Some legendary, some little known. Now, before we get to today's location, I want you to think back, back to the 1980s and 90s. If you by any chance subscribed to HBO between, say, 1989 and 1996, you may very well remember this. theme you'd hear at the beginning of the horror series, Tales from the Crypt. And if you ever saw it, you probably remember, it was kind of spooky. 
You had this cackling crypt keeper who introduced each episode, many of which were pretty darn graphic in the violence department. But that, obviously, was just television. Here in D.C., you can find crypts that are the real deal. Or, more accurately, they at least look an awful lot like the real deal. When I do the tours here, I tell the people, well, from now, now from, from the Holy Land, we are going to go straight to Rome because, because <laughs> we're going to see the catacombs. We're in the Brookland neighborhood of northeast Washington with Fernando Pereiro, one of two full-time tour guides at the Franciscan Monastery. I've been uh, working in the monastery as a tour guide since August 2011. I'm originally from Argentina. Hundreds of friars have lived at the monastery since 1899, often as preparation for serving in Israel, or the Holy Land as they call it, where the Catholic Church cast the Franciscans as its chief custodians of Christianity's holiest sites. And you can find replicas of many of these sites right here at the monastery, including the Shrine of the Annunciation in Nazareth, where the Virgin Mary learned she would bear the child of God, the Nativity in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, and as Kim Bender and I see as Fernando leads us out of the Holy Land, so to speak. Right, so we can now walk inside the catacombs. The catacombs and crypts of Rome. So this is the replica of the, the catacombs from Rome, where yeah. Christians were buried Yes, and the catacombs in Rome are almost endless because there are more than 900 miles of catacombs inside the city and there were buried there about 9 million Christians. D.C.'s Franciscan Monastery only covers about 46 acres, so obviously its catacombs aren't nearly as extensive as Rome's, but if you wander around the narrow, echoing corridors, as we're doing with Fernando, you'll see they contain quite a lot including the actual remains of two saints. The first is Saint Benignus. A Roman soldier from the second century who was killed for his faith, and uh, he was buried in the catacombs, and in, on top of the altar we can see his actual bones, his uh, relics. And we know that he died beheaded, and um, for what I know, we, here we have most of his bones, but the skull is in a church in Italy. The bones atop the altar are encased in a glass container or reliquary. And inside the altar is a replica of a Renaissance sculpture of St. Benignus. In his hand is a palm frond. And the palm branch is the symbol of Marty. So if you see a saint holding a palm branch uh, in a holy statue or stained glass in the church, you can be sure that that saint is a martyr, right? And now we're going to go this way and see uh, St. Innocent. Saint Innocent also holds a palm frond, which rests against his elaborately trimmed and beaded dress. We don't know his real name, but he's known as a Saint Innocent because he was found buried in the catacombs and there was an inscription in his tomb outside that in Latin translated to English was saying Innocent resting in peace, so he was renamed as a Saint Innocent. As with Saint Benignus, Innocent's remains are actually here at the monastery. Clearly we can see the bones of his hands and also the bones of his feet. But while St. Benignus is represented by a sculpture? What we can see inside the altar is the, um, the actual body of St. Innocent. The rest of the bones or the relics are hidden inside the dress, and also there's a wax mask and a wig which is hiding and protecting the skull. And while St. Benignus is clearly a grown man, St. Innocent? He was about six or maybe seven years old. Is clearly just a kid. He was very young when he was killed for being a Christian. That happened during the Roman persecutions of the second century. He was found buried in the catacombs of Rome together with uh, two adults. We believe that they were uh, his parents. Innocent's remains have been moved several times. Most recently, they were housed at a Franciscan seminary in Illinois. And when that seminary closed in the 1990s, 
these relics finally were uh, donated here to the monastery. And accompanying them back then was a bottle, or as Fernando calls it, a vase of blood. There was a custom of burying the martyrs with a base containing the blood of the martyr. In the case of St. Innocent, we also had the, that base, which is here at the end of the uh, uh, reliquary. Yeah? That's from the second century. These relics are over 1,800 years old, and this is authentic. This is not a replica. As for all the things that are replicas in the catacombs and in the monastery itself, to create them, the monastery's architect, Aristide Leonori, visited Bethlehem, Nazareth, and other sacred spots where he took careful measurements and notes. And although construction on the monastery ended in 1899, it would take nearly 30 more years before all of its replicas and reproductions were complete. But with 25,000 people visiting the monastery each year, Fernando Pereiro says all that hard work was well worth it. How do visitors tend to respond when they take the tour of the catacombs in particular? Well, the comment that I get more often is that our tours are very informative. And I can see the, the expression on their faces when they're going back upstairs that they, they feel that they got something new in their life. The Franciscan Monastery offers tours in both English and Spanish. To see photographs of some of its replicas, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Can anybody show me? The road to a sea. I've been away so long, so very long, but now I'm home to stay. We'll turn now from the old and ancient to the brand spanking new, more specifically, a brand spanking new play. This world premiere thriller is playing right now at Cultural DC's Mead Theater Lab. And as Lauren Landau tells us, the show explores a rather frightening theme, bullying and how it can drive people to extremes. In the Forest She Grew Fangs is a new play with some classic folktale references. There's a story. I don't remember all the details, but there are woods and a wolf and a girl and something awful happens. But it's not the story you're thinking of. Megan Graves stars as Lucy, a high school student and a nobody. My name isn't Lucy Maggard. It's hardly ever Lucy Maggard. It's Mag the Hag or Lucy Maggot. Loser Maggard, Lucy Loser, Haggard Maggard. On a sunny weekday morning, I caught up with the leading lady at her other job. When Megan isn't on stage telling stories, she's selling them at Hooray for Books, a children's bookstore in Alexandria. The play that, that you're starring in right now is kind of a twisted take on Little Red Riding Hood. Do you sell fairy tale books here? We do. We have a pretty popular fairy tale section. And interestingly enough, more and more parents now want the original fairy tales, which are very, very dark. And while Fangs makes clear references to Little Red Riding Hood, it's not an adaptation, but more of a loose reimagining. It is, however, pretty dark. I play Lucy, who is kind of the town loner, and when we meet her in the play, she's sort of at a, a breaking point where the, the bullying that she's experiencing at school and the loneliness that she's feeling after being abandoned by her mother is kind of coming to a head. And at the same time, this new girl appears in town who sort of inspires her to change her life in a very dramatic way. Megan is a company member of the Washington Rogues, which is co-presenting the play with Cultural DC. She says her biggest challenge was portraying her character's dark side without going full wolf. By the end of the show, Lucy's not entirely human, but it was really important to me that I still capture the essence of her human emotions in that. 
those emotions are a big aspect of the show. Megan notes that almost all of the characters are bullied in some way, but Lucy is steeped in it. Every emotion that she has springs from this place of being victimized that by the time that she actually cracks, absolutely, I can say, looking at it on a paper, this is horrible. What happens at the end is horrible, but we are kind of cheering for her. She says you can't really put any of the characters in a box. There's not just one good guy and there's not just one bad guy. It's a little of both. And that kind of reflects life in a lot of ways. Playwright Stephen Spotswood says Fang started with a poem he wrote a while ago. It was about a girl sitting in church thinking about the girl sitting in front of her and just wanting to bite the back of her neck. But halfway through the first draft, Spotswood read a story that deeply impacted the direction of his show. It was a, a profile of a county in Minnesota where a whole bunch of high school students had committed suicide or attempted suicide because they were either they were gay or perceived as gay and were bullied. As the play evolved, bullying emerged as one of the central themes. Spotswood says if he and the rest of the team do their job correctly, the audience should recognize the parallels between what happens in the play and what's happening in society. You, know, you should have that feeling of rooting for the person who ends up being the monster and having to walk away thinking about what that means. Even when she lashes out with horrific violence, it's difficult not to empathize with Lucy. So despite the blood and gore, the portrayal of bullying's psychological toll might make you stop and ask yourself, who's really the monster? And that is a spooky thought. I'm Lauren Landau. In the Forest, She Grew Fangs runs through November 3rd at the Mead Theater Lab at Flashpoint. You can find more information on our website, metroconnection.org. And today's Haunted DC show with Bookend. Our monthly look at the local literary scene. Tom Monteleone is a prolific author of horror and science fiction. He's written three dozen books and published more than a hundred short stories. Our own Jonathan Wilson recently met up with the author in a park in the Canton neighborhood of Baltimore. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you this month is because it is the month of Halloween and you are a horror and sci-fi writer. So um, I guess, you know, my first question is, do you look at Halloween any differently than anybody else being um, a writer of your ilk? Yeah, I really like Halloween. It's probably, you know, when I was growing up, I think Christmas was my best holiday, but Halloween's definitely my best one now. Yeah, I have a lot of fun with it. We still uh, we still decorate the house really big for all the kids in the neighborhood because they all think, oh, that's where the crazy guy lives, you know, always has a great Halloween. Because I, like I dress up as, like, Phantom of the Opera, uh, The Invisible Man. Uh, some years I just do the old skeleton re- reaper thing. And I scare the kids, you know, when they knock on the door. I, I, I don't open the door. I just kind of let the door go, and just open. And then they have to decide whether they want to, like, peer in or, or run away. And then I'll do it, you know, like, come in. Yeah. It's fun. The The other question that comes to mind is, do do you get scared still? I mean, you've been writing horror uh, works for so long now. I'm wondering, is it is it harder to scare yourself or to be scared um, 
do you not scare easily or do you scare more easily because you're more in touch with that part of your psyche? I know when I was a kid, uh, and one of the reasons I was attracted to all the outre genres, you know, like science fiction and horror and fantasy and, you know, Twilight Zone type stuff. I was very easily scared. I had a very active imagination, which I think is, I think what most writers and most creative people, they have to have that. They, they've got to have, even when you're a little kid, you, you realize you were looking at the world differently than a lot of other people. That you're not just in it for the baseball cards and the, you know, the bubble gum that you get at the back of the pack. You're looking for something else. In terms of when you started actually writing some of these ideas down and then even thinking, hey, maybe I can make a living writing, did that happen early on or did it happen by accident? I wasn't sure if I really thought about making a living at it, but I remember I was, I, I remember the actual day that, that I realized I wanted to be a writer. I was reading this anthology by, um, it was actually a collection of stories by Theodore Sturgeon, who was very popular in the 60s and 70s. And I was reading this story, and I, I was probably about 11. And I had this, because when you're a kid, you have this view of the world that everything's kind of just there. You don't really think about where anything comes from. You don't have a sense of cause and effect or phenomenology or any of that. It's just there. And I was reading the story, and all of a sudden it hit me that somebody had not only thought up this story... But they actually sat down and linked all these words together and made this story happen. And it was a very weird revelation for a kid, you know, to, to even think like that. And, I, and then the, the next thought I had naturally was, hey, I think I'd like to do this. I'd like to try this. Because whenever, whenever the Cubs got cookouts and everything, you know, their campouts, I was always a guy telling the goofy stories, you know, around a campfire. I just liked doing it. So... I saved my money from cutting lawns that year, and I bought a typewriter at Sears for 29 bucks, and I started typing out stories when I was 12 years old. How did you start getting paid and, and thinking, you know, hey, I, can, I don't need to, you know, become a doctor yeah. or a lawyer? I mean, when did you realize that? So all through high school, nothing. I go through college. Uh, I was pre-med for a while, but a calculus absolutely blew me away. Then I thought, eh, you know, if I, I'm going to try writing again once I get out of here. I got out, and I started writing seriously. And I must have written about 20 stories over a two-year period. So I, I sent out stories all the time. I'd start at Playboy because they were paying about three grand a, a story. They would always reject me. And I would work my way all the way down to these little science fiction magazines. Two and a half years go by, I've sold nothing. And uh, I'm getting form rejection slips. And there was this one anthology series that was being published about once a year by this uh, really well-known writer at the time and editor's name was Damon Knight. Finally, I get a postcard from him, and he says, Mr. Monteleone, I've taken notice of your work for two reasons. One, you have a distinctive last name, and two, you keep sending me stories. Right? <laughs> and then he put, you know, all of which have been execrable and unpublishable. He says, I'm going to make you a deal. You send me the, whatever story you think is the best thing you've ever written. Because of you shown such determination, obviously you don't, you're gonna, not going to quit. And I will, I will line edit your story for you and tell you everything that's exactly wrong with it. And then you, it's up to you to decide what you want to do with it. So I spent like three months writing this new story that I had an idea for. And I'm polishing it and I'm beating it up and I'm dragging it through. I finally get it. I think this is easily the best thing I've ever written. I send it off to him. Finally, this uh, manila envelope shows up. I open it up. The first page, there were so many 
corrections on the page. There was more red ink than my typewriter, black ink. It looked like an Illinois road map. You know what I mean? It was like, I'm looking at that, and I was at this crossroads. I, I was afraid to even read what I had done wrong. It could have been very easy to just put it in the envelope and say, you know what, I'm going to go be a dentist or a pharmacist or something. But I, so I set it down for about a, a 24 hours. I finally went back to it, and I sat back, and I went through every line. And it was a, it was a most incredible learning experience I think I've ever gone through. That was author Tom Monteleone speaking with Jonathan Wilson. Monteleone's new novel, Submerged, will be published next month. If you'd like to hear more from Jonathan's conversation with the author, including his advice for aspiring writers, visit our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Benston, Brian Russo, Tara Boyle, and Lauren Landau. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, our door-to-door theme, No Girl, and Turn Your Face, our theme for the location, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll shuffle up a deck of wild cards. That's a show we do every once in a while where we go theme-free and bring you an hour of stories on all sorts of things, really. We'll find out why so many school kids are going hungry when lunchtime rolls around. We'll visit a long, shuttered, and nearly forgotten part of the Maryland Zoo. And we'll take a rather enterprising voyage as we explore the strange new world of a legendary spacecraft. I think Star Trek inspired many of us in the game, you know, as we started in it, to say, okay, we're doing Apollo, pretty darn hard, people to the moon, but look what we could have. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.